0: At large, I'm Leonard Lopate. As far as I'm concerned, David Rothenberg is a national treasure. Over the course of his life, he's been involved in theater, social activism, politics, advocating for the lives of people who've been impacted by the criminal justice system. And he's been a familiar voice on WBAI for five decades. I'm honored that he's agreed to return to my show today to talk about his storied career, Hello, David. Welcome Hi. to Leonard Lopate Large. Leonard, thank you for having me. And Hi. aren't you also about to celebrate a birthday?
1: Well, I'm not going to celebrate it. Everybody else is. I'm going to show up. <laughs> uh-huh. How old? Ninety. Wow. And when is that? Uh, the 19th of August. Me and Bill Clinton. Oh. And Ron
0: Darling. Well, I will mention later that uh, you, Ron Darling would be important to you because you began... Your career, to some degree, your original ambition was to become a sports writer, wasn't it?
1: Well, I was. When I was in high school and college, I made money on the side covering high school football and basketball games.
0: You're the founder of the Fortune Society, a former member of the New York City Human Rights Commission. You've been a publicist and producer for over 100 Broadway and off-Broadway productions. And, of course, you're one of my colleagues here on WBAI. So where do we begin? In Teaneck, New Jersey? Oh, my goodness. Well, Class of
1: '51, huh? Class of '51. Don't go to reunions anymore, Lenny. When you get when the when they're that old and you spend all your time looking at their name tags trying to figure out who they are, you know you you shouldn't go to any more reunions.
0: You, when you were a student at the University of Denver, you became the campus president of Students for Democratic Action. So were you already politically active?
1: Yeah, I. Uh, uh, and I was chairman of students for Stevenson, and then was editor of the college paper. I, I blossomed. Him, I blossomed in college. I didn't at Tinak High School. It wasn't until I went far away that I found out who I was. I think.
0: But that was uh, you were the uh, editorial page columns for the Clarion, the uh, school newspaper, and wasn't a petition circulated that led you were a communist? So yeah. you already. Were
1: well, that was the McCarthy area. When I was named uh, to become editor at the at that time, you were interviewed by a group of students, faculty, and administration people, and I was selected. Um, I made a good presentation. I had been writing i I'd been writing for the paper for three years, but I was I would have been the first non fraternity person, and the fraternity. one of the fraternities started a petition that I'm a, was a former member of a communist cell block which was absurd. I didn't even know any communists. And, but it was, you know, when you're 20 years old and, and you suddenly think, I'm going to be, uh, not only lose that job, but I'll have that stigma on me. And they called a, a student government uh, special meeting to override it and uh, unbeknownst to me, lots of students showed up in my behalf, but most important was a professor named Byron Johnson, who was my economics professor, later he was elected to Congress, and he came with the dean of the law school, and at the beginning they stood up and said, if anyone says anything that's slanderous about me, there'll be a lawsuit and nobody would say anything and so the meeting was dismissed and i became editor
0: you've been openly gay for many years when did you come out
1: uh 1973 on a national oh, so, televi- on the so sustain television show
0: but, but did people oh, duplistic- go college
1: I, no i was a, i lived I, no i dated and went steady and with a girl and i was living a duplicitous life like many people like most gay people did in the 50s and
0: 60s and you uh, in the military. You arrived in New York in 58, 1958 after you were released from the U.S. Army. I've heard that you were inspired to pursue acting after you saw Joseph Mankiewicz's desire in the movie All, all About, About Eve. I,
1: well, I, No, I, wouldn't, I didn't want to be an actor. I wanted to be in that world of theater people. Mm-hmm. I had always wanted to be a sports writer, but when I saw All About Eve, they were all sophisticated and sharp. I knew there was something beyond Teaneck. And I wanted to be in that world. And so when I came to New York, I must have taken a dozen jobs before I... You were a typist at ad agency. uh, All of that. Where do you get all this information, Lenny? (laughs) It's
0: out (laughs) there. You've been following me. (laughs) Yeah, well, we've known each other for 50 years. Well, you know, when you do come
1: to New York, as a kid, in those days, I was sharing an apartment with four other guys paying $50 a month rent. And... It was a big apartment on the Upper West Side and uh, I got a call on a Saturday night to come for an interview on Sunday morning. That should have been a clue. Mm-hmm. That And the job was to uh, work in a theater office just for the summer.
0: For Bob Larkin? Was it Bob Larkin? Yes.
1: Who t- where do you get this?
0: Huh. <sighs> oh, you Listen, do- I try to do my job well, too. You but do your it, job well. Where is very well. this
1: information hidden? Where do I
0: find it about me? <laughs> So you co- you uh, did interviews with actors, directors, and producers, uh, or you covered them, right? Yeah.
1: Let me, can I tell you my favorite story? Because, you know, years later I wrote a book and I do my one-person show name drop I haven't done name-dropping. But the first person I met that had an impact—well, not an impact, that became a friend in the theater, that first office I was working in that summer, they said that they're going to do a summer tour— of Jamaica because in those days most shows didn't run in the summer on Broadway because there was no air conditioning.
0: Jamaica was a hit musical
1: with Lena Horne. Yeah,
0: but and they Al said Pinelli was in
1: it. Ah, you gave him my stairway. They said, hmm. they said, uh, go to the uh, studio. Abby Lincoln is going to play the J- Lena Horne role, and a kid in the chorus is going to direct it. And I went there, and this kid in the chorus. It was about a year older than me, standing there, and I said, Hi, I'm David Rothenberg. And he said, Hi, I'm Alvin Ailey. And we did the picture thing, and then Alvin was funny and clever, and we had so much fun. We went out and had lunch. and we, you know, In those days, it was there were no big buildings in the theater area. It was a community, and you knew each other. And Alvin and I would run into each other, and he would invite me to something, and I'd, if my office was working on something. And one day, I run into him in front of Howard Johnson's, it was the summer of either 59 or 60 I've never been able to remember that and he said what are you doing this afternoon now that's a big when you work in the theater and somebody wants to know what you're doing it's kind of risky because it usually means they're doing a showcase and if you like the person as I liked Alvin oh what's he going to do and do I have to go what, go see it and he said Alvin Ailey says to David Rothenberg on a hot summer day I've started a dance company mm. and I thought, Oh God. I don't know anything about dance. He says I'm doing a rehearsal this afternoon too at Variety Arts over Howard Johnson's. So I went upstairs in the summer, no air conditioning, like this office, like this studio. No air conditioning. The dancers had been rehearsing, you know, it smelled like a gym. And he said, I'm creating something from the Bible. And I thought, Well there's the final nail in the coffin. I don't know anything about dancing have you ever seen Revelations? No. The Ailey Company's signature dance? But place? I
0: remember that it was a big hit. It well, it's
1: it, when they they still do it, it's worldwide renowned. And I sat there and I knew I was in the company of genius. It was it was so evident. And and uh, Alvin was my friend till he passed away. He was a lifetime friend.
0: But you met a lot of interesting people at that time. Weren't you Elizabeth Taylor's date in, to the opening of Hamlet on Broadway?
1: I like to think of it as she was my, that I was her date. Uh-huh. But it was the, it, this was 62. No, 63, 63, 63. And her... She
0: was much older than you. Pardon me? She was much older no, than No, not much. No, really? No, no.
1: Uh, we met... Um, at the height, Lenny, do you remember the international scandal when she, she was in Cleopatra and Richard came into the uh, production, took over for uh, Stephen Boyd, and they were both married at the time. Elizabeth was married inexplicably to Eddie Fisher, mm-hmm. and she, and he was married to uh, Sybil Sybil Burton, and was known to have fairs, and He was an unknown stage actor and made a couple of movies she was the reigning queen of the cinema at the time first actress to get a million dollars for a movie which she got for cleopatra and then the then rumors were flying and they both left their mates and uh, went to then they went to Puerto Vallado to... He was going to make Night of the Iguana, at which point the producer, Alex Cohn, said to me, we're doing Hamlet with Richard Burton, John Gielgud's directing, and you have to handle the press, at which point I'm watching the madness down in Mexico. And I thought, Jesus. And we decided it was, we were going to rehearse in Toronto to lessen the impact of the uh, paparazzi. I arrived in Toronto and the King Edward Hotel. This is 70, six, uh, 63, December of 63. Being picketed by the uh, Canadian Legion of Decency because Richard and Elizabeth were living mm-hmm. in sin outside of marriage. They got married during the rehearsals. And then at uh, a luncheon was arranged and I met with Richard and Elizabeth and John Gielgudin. And after going all the press things, Elizabeth said to me, oh honey, they don't need us. Let's go sit over there. Mm-hmm. And What she told me, and this was very interesting, she uh, she said, are you going to be hanging around Toronto? And I said, pretty much, I'm back and forth. And she said, I can't go anywhere, you know. I can't go out. If if you're going to be here, can we hang out? Oh, all right, Elizabeth, this is a dirty job. And and so when Richard opened in Hamlet in Toronto, she asked if I would be her date, and and I was.
0: You've been involved in a lot of... um Successes. Wasn't your first Broadway production Beyond the Fringe, which yeah I did see. It was a huge hit. But uh, what I didn't remember was that its opening day was the day of the Cuban Missile Crisis. It it was the day that it broke. Oh, because the first
1: preview in New York. We were great success in Boston and Washington, and then. On the Monday, we had a week of previews in New York starting on Monday with a Saturday night opening. And on the Monday was the day that we learned that the uh, missiles were pointed at us and we might all be obliterated. And nobody laughed at anything and beyond the fringe at the first preview. And we thought, well, if we're not going to be dead by the missiles, we'll be dead. (laughs) by the by the critics
0: why didn't it it was funny not
1: the first act curtain is a whole thing about the end of the world Mm. and people didn't find that funny that night opening night was the day after khrushchev announced that they're pulling back the guns the laughter was out of proportion because it was you know hysteria from relief Mm. and the and the critics in those days came opening night and the show ran for three years
0: Yeah, well, it was a great show. So how did you come to wind up being its producer?
1: Uh, Beyond the Fringe? Yeah. No, I wasn't. I was the press agent. Oh. Alex Cohn was the producer. In
0: 1967, you took out a loan to produce a play. um, A a key moment in your life. Changed my life. It was called Fortune in Men's Eyes, which revealed the horrors of life in prison. It was written by... um, John Herbert, a former prisoner?
1: Yes. I, I read the play. Uh, uh, it was sent to me by Nathan Cohn, who was the drama critic at the uh, Toronto Star, who I met during Hamlet.
0: And he thought you should be producing plays?
1: no. He said, "I've I, I read a play that's being that's being kicking around Canada," and he said nobody will do it here. And I think it's brilliant. And I said famously to him, "Nathan, you haven't liked anything since Potemkin." I'd love to see read this play, and he sent it to me. And I wrote John Herbert a, a letter the next day saying I felt I was trapped in a room with four cobras. Hmm it was about how a young man what i thought it was about a young man who turned out to be john sturry on his first night in jail was gang raped and it was how the system destroys somebody and at first i gave the script to different producers that i knew and they all said well you're nuts nobody's going to come see a play about a kid gets raped in a cell and i didn't think it was about the i didn't think it was about that i thought the play was about how the system mm-hmm destroys because the boy who comes in and is victimized at the beginning at the end becomes the predator the system he says at the end i'm going to get back at you all and i was i didn't know that it was my calling at that point and the actors in rehearsal wanted to go to a jail to validate their performances and my first visit to rikers island was in december of 1966 Still in the headlines. It
0: remains a troubled place. Was it troubled then?
1: I said when I came out, uh, I was interviewed by backstage newspaper, and I said they wanted to know all about the theater stuff, and I said this place is an exercise in futility. We were in the juvenile unit, and all I saw was young kids being herded about, and then in the dormitory, they were all just sitting there staring into space. And I said 17-, 18-year-old boys should not be sitting there they have so much energy so much life they're they're suffocating these kids they're going to the question I kept saying is how if they've done something that brought them in there how are they going to be any better when they come out and will we pick up the tab and I be I was becoming an advocate while I my plan was to produce a play but in my the back of my head I was becoming an advocate
0: my guest on today's Linda Lopez at Large is David Rothenberg, one of my colleagues here at WBAI, and we'll get into that later. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. So that play got inspired you to establish the, the Fortune Society, which is an organization for ex-offenders that works with former inmates to... Aid them in adjusting to life after prison? Yeah, it, it's, it,
1: it was never my intention, Lenny. I, um, a couple of weeks after we opened, a professor at St. John's said, I'm bringing a class, a criminology class. Can we have a, a discussion with the actors afterwards? And that was right up my alley. I had been politically and socially active in the civil rights movement movement before that and so I I I liked the idea of it and we invited the whole audience to stay and what happened that night the whole audience did stay because it was a kind of play where you wanted to talk about it afterwards and everybody was very complimentary until this man said well this is an exaggeration ba 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 and a man from the back of the house stood up and said Mm -hmm. not if my 20 years in joints like this counts for anything and I said to him well come on down and Pat McGarry came and mesmerized the audience for, e- for a- an hour. Afterwards, we went for coffee, and I said, Pat, you have to come back the fi- next week. We'll do this another week. And he said, everybody knows this, about this. And I said, no, they don't. I don't, and I'm pretty hip about what's happening. And then he said, you got to get a black guy. I did white time. Hmm. And I said, what are you talking about? Uh. And he said... Well, in Rikers in those days, we had the black, you know, the black tier and the white tier, and I said, "Well,
0: I, it was seg- segregation." Segregated,
1: most of the prisons were, and the upstate were too. And so I said, "Well, I don't know anybody. You're the first guy I've met outside of the playwright." And Pat said, well, you know, I work in a tailor shop and I have this guy that comes in. We don't talk about it, but I can read him. And he came back the following week with Clarence Cooper, who had done time in Michigan and had written a book called uh, The Farm. And whereas Pat was outspoken and gregarious, Clarence was intense and intellectual and angry. And I said, "Central, central casting. And the two of them were very committed to this. It was almost therapeutic. And and we did it for a series of Tuesday nights. And I called Cy Peck of the Times, the New York Times, and I said, you know, I think this is an interesting story. And they sent a reporter down. And the headline said, the drama continues after the curtain falls. And the following Tuesday night, when we had the discussion, uh, at least a dozen guys were had been incarcerated, mm-hmm. and we all went for coffee across the street.
0: You were the Fortune Society's executive director for 18 years. Yeah. Is that how you became one of the civilian monitors during the Attica prison riot in September 1971?
1: Well, it, 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 the guys in Attica were getting very political uh, as a result of... Uh, oh. Um, well, like the the civil rights movement politicized a lot of people, and uh, I was getting a lot of mail at Fortune Society, and we we published. Lenny, remember mimeograph machines? Mm. We had a little mimeograph newsletter, and the warden at at Attica banned it, saying it was revolutionary. Mm. It was just. P- telling where we're speaking, what we're doing. But in their eyes, it was revolutionary because it was by and for formerly incarcerated people. And he banned it. And a volunteer, a law student at Columbia named Steve Shostakovsky, took it to a pro bono law firm. And we went to court. And the decision, Fortune versus McGinnis, which is still on the books, says when you lock someone up, you can't determine what they—you don't have the right to determine what they can read. And the guys at Attica thought we were this big, thriving organization. I was still working in the theater. My theater was uh, Fortune was speaking engagements, and and that was about it. But uh, when Attica jumped off, when the uh, uprising of inmates began. Uh, and they wanted outsiders to come in. Arthur Eve, who was an assemblyman from Buffalo, called me and said, You're on the short list mm. of, uh, to come to the yard to be an observer.
0: And you were with a pretty impressive delegation, which included William Kunstler, Tom Wicker, Congressman Herman Badillo, and State Senator John Dunn. And John Dunn returned. Uh, uh, pleaded with Governor Nelson Rockefeller to uh, change things, only to learn that uh, the governor had ordered troops to take over the prison.
1: It was. I always thought it was political. That that at that time Nelson Rockefeller wanted to be president, and he was perceived as an eastern liberal. And I think both the Rockefeller drug law and sending the troops into Attica was his effort. To uh, tell the Republican Party that he's one of them, not one of, not an Eastern establishment. He no.
0: wasn't woke after all. Pardon me. He wasn't woke after all.
1: No, but he died with his boots on, if you recall.
0: So, he he sent in troops, um, uh, and uh, what's happened to Attica since? Has it calmed down? Has it well, resolved there, the problem? Uh,
1: there, there was, uh, there were, there was cosmetic changes made in the in the around the whole prison system for a while but it's it's still the prison system in america in new york on rikers island is still an exercise in futility because the need to punish is greater than the need to solve the problems that the people that run them don't do not have a don't feel a responsibility to return people to the community to make us safer they uh, people come out of prison angrier mm. and uh, the, the well it's in the recidivist rape.
0: Well over its 55 years Fortune has become one of the leading re-entry service organizations in the US and it's also a leading advocate in the fight for criminal justice reform and alternatives to incarceration how many formerly incarcerated people does it serve in a typical year?
1: Oh my goodness uh about 7000 come through. We now have five residences. We opened the castle 20 years ago because one of the major things we found out is that people coming out of 50% of the people who who are released from prison are homeless and end up in the shelter system and commit survival crimes because the conditions are horrendous in the in the um uh, Shelters and we opened the castle about 20 years ago, and it's become a model for it's run by formerly incarcerated people. Many on the staff now were initial um, residents there, and we have subsequently opened two, two uh, residents in the Bronx, one in Queens, and one in Brooklyn.
0: And what services do you offer there? Well, they
1: they all everybody can go to the main office at, in in Queens, and there's we have educational programs, job finding, uh, and in later years we've had the Better Living Center, which deals with mental illness and which is a serious issue. But at the Castle, it's a, a community, and people learn how to cook and how to how to the whole thing with the with the residents is. You're going to go living out on your own after you've had a successful time here. How are you, how are you going to live? You know, If you've been institutionalized, you haven't made decisions, you haven't had to shop, you haven't had to know how to deal with neighbors. And I go to the community meeting every Thursday night. I've gone every Thursday for 20 years. And you never know what's going to come up in the discussion.
0: Are women now included? Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, very much so.
0: Were they from the start?
1: It took about two years. Uh, uh, We were at a speaking engagement, and somebody said, who goes up? And some woman in the audience said, I do, Jeanette Spencer, and she came forward. And her presence made it other women then came forward. But, you know, that was 1968 or 69, and for obvious reasons, women felt uh, we're taking a back seat.
0: In the early days of AIDS... The Fortune Society received letters from inmates describing men dying from a strange epidemic. So what did you do? Oh, that was, that was, uh, that was heartbreaking. I was getting,
1: I was getting letters, uh, and I got one particular from a man who was working in the kitchen at Attica, and he said one of his colleagues got AIDS and he was scared and didn't know what to do. So I called the uh, commissioner's office. Tom Coglin was the commissioner. Marty Horn, who was very receptive, was the deputy commissioner. And I said, you're going to have some real problems here. People are scared, and they're going to— And he said, what's going on? You know, what can we do? And I said, well, the only game in town is the gay men's health crisis. Mm-hmm. I called them, and I said, could you put, put some literature together to give us— And I sent it to Albany, to, to Commissioner uh, Horn, who got it into Attica. He called me two days later and said, they won't let it in because the word gay is in the literature from the gay men's health crisis. So I went to back to them and I said, could you print some lit- literature just saying GMHC, <laughs> just your letters? And, and then they got that information. And, <laughs> but that's, that was an example of how resistant the, the, criminal, the correctional department in New York was then, and it, as things pop up now, how inadequate they were to respond to a crisis because of their own fears and prejudices.
0: Well, do you think New York has been better? Although we hear about problems today in many other states, like Florida, Texas. And oh no, it, it,
1: it's it. You know, somebody said, "What's the worst prison?" I said, "I think it's the one you're in." <laughs>
0: Is AIDS still an issue in the prisons? No, but COVID was certainly. Mm-hmm.
1: The, the the federal prisons. I was getting letters from from Louisiana, from a federal joint. They were dormitories where they had no masks and they weren't getting uh, they weren't getting vaccinations, and they uh, they were on top of each other. The, the the double bunks were right next to each other, and some one guy got COVID, then they all got COVID.
0: You uh, wound up doing a radio show here. I did. You've been doing it for 50 years?
1: Well, the first one was called Both Sides of the Bars. It was uh, a criminal justice program. I hosted it, and I would have one formerly incarcerated person and one person from the system, and that would be the topic. And we did that for about three years until I came in one day, and they said, oh, your program's canceled. And I said, I have guests coming. And they said, well, they're not on. (laughs) And
0: that was my introduction. WBAI has always been like this. Yes, of course.
1: So I didn't do it. And then I kept getting calls to come on as a guest. Mm -hmm. And then when Samori Marksman arrived, he said... I want you back. And I said, well, I want to come back, but I don't want to do a criminal justice show. I want to become Martin Block, who was a disc jockey that I knew, you know, that was Mm -hmm. prominent when I was a kid. And he said, what? Was he make-believe borrow? That's what he was. And I said, the reason I want to play music is I still want to talk about criminal justice, and I want to talk about the civil rights movement, but I think you have a wider audience if you play music and talk about theater and movies, and then along the way you can talk about the political and social passions you have and samori said that's fine and i became any wednesday <laughs> and then i became any saturday and so now i became do- any day of the week you got to
0: <laughs> <laughs> you fill in on any day of the week but isn't it generally any saturday yes
1: and then they repeat it now on mondays mm. i used to do mondays live but you know when you're near 90 it's tough and what
0: time does it go on
1: Uh, Well, it doesn't matter anymore, Lenny. You know, they have archives and people. It's on 8 to 10 on Saturday mornings. But I I walked into a room at the castle, and this guy was on his, uh, what do you call that thing that you're looking at? His laptop. And he said, I'm listening to you now. And I said, what do you mean? That's how I found out. It was three days after the program, and he was listening then. That's new technology. I don't understand it.
0: Oh, I would think right now a a fair number of our listeners are people who listen to the show during podcasts, repeats, rather than than live, because not everybody's available from one to two o'clock when I'm on the air, but they still want to hear the things that we're discussing.
1: The world is moving much faster than than I can grasp. I don't understand TikTok or podcasts or hula. Those have all gone, and I haven't become a part of it.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate and at large, And the 19th century guest. <laughs> well, you're 90 years old soon. This is Leonard Lopate at large and WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Today's my devoted David Rothenberg, one of my colleagues here at WBAI, and uh, a key figure in politics and theater and so many other aspects of our culture. And you wanted us to play that song. Why?
1: Well, it was it was it was from Hair, and when I was the press agent on Hair, everybody thinks it was a big hit, and it really it was successful because of the nude scene, which was much publicized. But not until the Fifth Dimension made that record did it become a sellout. Uh, the show, uh, and then all the songs in the show were. It's one of the last shows in which. A Broadway musical had things on the you know songs on the hip parade, and a couple of months ago on on my Saturday or Monday program, I had a couple of the original cast, Chapman Roberts and Mary Davis, who I both who I was crazy about, and we and we got very nostalgic about. Uh, the, all the craziness around here. Do you know that uh, Melba Moore was in the cast? Diane Keaton was... I used to sit and talk. She was one of the girls in the chorus. we used to sit on the steps after the matinee. And I thought, gosh, she's cute.
0: <laughs> Who knew? Do you think that theater had more of an impact on, on the culture then than it does today? Uh, uh, I... I I don't know about I can't
1: speak for the culture I think each individual I've seen a couple of plays this year that the audience was devastated by so for those in the audience that day one play called Downstate and another called Primary Trust both off Broadway you could feel the audience um, the individuals in the audience deeply moved so
0: and we both saw Eisenhower yes and uh, I have to admit that it. Really changed my opinion about Eisenhower. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, we were, you know, back then we were all progressive.
0: Amazing it's, performance as well, by. Well, way. John
1: Rubenstein's wonderful in it, but I think part of it is that uh, seeing how the Republican Party has gone, that Eisenhower seemed so sane and reasonable. He was a true American patriot. Uh, he didn't want to overthrow the country for himself. He wanted to. He wanted to. Um, In his moderate way, wanted to improve things.
0: Well, he pushed for racial integration. He was uh, the president when NATO was created. Yes, and he did say he, Can't imagine a Republican doing those things well, today. I,
1: I think he'd be I think he'd be startled. He in the play it comes out. It's rather fascinating. I, I remember I'm old enough to remember. Nobody knew whether Eisenhower was a Republican or a Democrat. We all knew he was the war hero from World War II. And in the play it's revealed that he was afraid richard that bob taft the senator from ohio who was very popular was going to get the republican nod and he was an isolationist and eisenhower thought it was very important for america to be part of the united nations to be part of the world community and so he declared himself a republican to run against taft in the primaries and with his popularity won and that's in the play eisenhower
0: Aren't you also a former member of the New York City Human Rights Commission? I was. What did you do there? Well, uh, I was— I did say former member. Yes. Well, you,
1: you, you serve at the uh, will of the uh, mayor— and that's a provocative story. I was a very early supporter of Ed Koch when everybody was – remember that year when everybody ran for Mayor Bella, Percy Sutton, Herman Badillo, Mario, Mario Cuomo? And they were all running, and Ed had been a very progressive con- – my congressman. And I was very supportive of him and worked hard and was on the transition team about criminal justice, and then he named me to the Human Rights Commission. Um he started moving to the right, to my discomfort. And one, a, a couple of things happened. When I was on the Human Rights Commission, I found out, and this is interesting because this is back in the 70s, I learned that immigrants being deported were in horrendous conditions in a federally held uh, jail in in lower Manhattan. And I said I wanted to go see them. And, and uh, the Koch people said, that's federal That's a federal decision. It's not city. And I said, but they're on city land. We're in New York. And as a human rights commissioner, myself and one of the other commissioners insisted we wanted to go see it. And it was horrible. Lenny, it was so sad. The the men were in one side, the women in the other, asking if I could take a note. The white woman said, can you give this note to my husband? It was just pitiful. And when we came out, we were told we couldn't talk to the media. That, they, that we were not allowed to because it was a federal issue. And I think Koch didn't want to have uh, any flack from the Reagan administration. And so I booked myself on the Orlean Francis Show on WOR and talked about it because it had to be talked about. And it was when I first became aware of the, the vile process by which people are deported, uh, and it's become dramatically by just sheer numbers has become so much worse
0: today. Today, but it know, was, but
1: it was. We're, we're continuing to go through these
0: problems, problems even though maybe we're not putting them in jail. We're putting them in some pretty awful places. Yeah. Well, you know,
1: I, I talked to a city council person in Dallas after they, they started shipping people up here, and I said, "I think your governor is horrendous," and she said, "He is." But it shouldn't just be a Texas problem. And I said, well, maybe New York and Dallas council people can get together and try and get Des Moines and Detroit and Denver and Milwaukee to assume some responsibility. Where are the church people? Where are the good people that every community could assume the responsibility for 100, 200 people and and absorb it and provide jobs and housing and food it's not overwhelming if it's a couple of hundred people in a city, but that's not come to pass. There's there's no inspired leadership. And I, I would hope that oh, I'm a dreamer. I would hope that the uh, religious community would come to bed, but now it hasn't happened. I I've, I've called elected officials and, you know, uh,
0: well, Texas is huge. And depending on where you live, you feel like you're living in a blue state, or you're living in a red state? Yeah,
1: Austin and Dallas are blue states. The rest of it is. Or
0: San Antonio as well. Yeah,
1: is San is okay. Yeah.
0: And then. And the,
1: then, the, and then you have, um, you know. Uh, and the same thing in Florida. Well, Abbott is the governor of of, uh, of Texas, and I said between him and Florida, that's like Abbott and Costello. The uh, you know. Who's on first is these two guys. They're just so clueless.
0: You also were appointed as advisory counsel to the New York State Commission on Human Rights in 1984. So was that mostly your career, or were, no, you, no, the, were you still the, the, working in theater and doing other things?
1: No, what happened when Mario became governor, Mario Cuomo...
0: The good Cuomo. The good
1: Cuomo. Well, the... the yeah. Andrew had—I had hopes for Andrew, but it didn't happen. The, um, when Mario was lieutenant governor, there was a prison bond issue, money, raising money to build more prisons. And I was adamantly against it. And Mario was chosen by Governor Carey to be the spokesperson for it. So I was going around the state debating Lieutenant Governor Mario Cuomo and liked him a lot, even in disagreement. And we had dinner one night someplace, Schenectady or what. And I said to him, you don't really believe this. You're too good a man. You do not believe that the answer is building more prisons. And he said, David, get rid of the Rockefeller drug law and I'm on your side. But as long as that law is there, we have to have places to put people. And so we became friendly adversaries during that. And you may recall, Lenny, the prison bond issue was defeated and then they took money from education to build prisons. That, I mean, that was disastrous. Then Mario was elected governor, and every time there was a trip, criminal justice commission, I'd get a call from Albany saying the governor wants you on it. And he would always come over to me when we were having, when we were being introduced. He'd say, "I'm governor now. You can't argue with me, Rothenberg." <laughs>
0: My guest is David Rothenberg, and this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Let's get back to some of the things that you did in the theater. Didn't you create, write, and produce a play called The Castle with the help of the Fortune Society participants? Oh, my, my great pride, yeah. It's been performed off-Broadway, on college campuses, and even in prisons. Yeah,
1: oh, a lot of prisons. Still doing it. We, we stopped during the pandemic, but we did it about a month ago, and we're going to do it as a special for Samaritan House in August.
0: And, uh, and what is the basic plot? Well—
1: I, I, you know, because of my theater background, when the castle opened, I kept getting theater tickets for for the men and women there. And one guy, Hamza Hakim, was particularly a theater devotee. He had done a lot of time in prison, but he wanted something else in his life. And I would go with Hamza all the time. And he said to me, uh, this is great going to the theater. And I said, you know, our community meetings are more dramatic than the plays that we're seeing. And he said, then why don't we do a play about us? Hmm. And I said, good idea. And I had just seen Eve Ensler's The Vagina Monologue, you know, five women sitting on a stool. And I said, "Let's. We'll, Hamza, we'll get you and a few other people. And we'll, I I will interview, you write a biography and I'll interview and shape it as a play. Mm. The tragedy in all of that is Hamza, who was, had become my dear friend and who was just getting married, died of a heart attack on the street and that put and then Casimir Torres came to me a few weeks later and said, he was Hamza's close friend he said let's do this for Hamza let's get it together and so we put it together and we were going to do it as a benefit for on a weekend and I announced it on BAI and all the BAI's came and they cheered and whatnot and we were going to do it as a fundraiser and in the audience was Eric Krebs the producer and he said I want to move this off Broadway what And we moved it off-Broadway. It ran for a year. We ended up playing at a—we were invited to a federal uh, conference of 500 probation officers. We did it in Washington before a conference of state uh, legislators. And we did it—we were invited to Albany. (laughs) We did it before all the elected officials there, but no Republicans came. Only Democrats came.
0: But still, you've been really— Admired, you've been inducted into the Off-Broadway Hall of
1: Fame. Well, I thought it was the Hall of Fame, but now they're calling it, I was a legend. The Hall of Fame, you have to be dead. And I said, "So come back in a year or two and I can be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs>
0: You've represented plays by Edward Albee, Tennessee Williams, Harold Pinter, and more than two hundred Broadway shows over the course of your career. Yes, but the, I was—I was,
1: I was made—I was declared a North Broadway legend because I produced a play that led to a social movement that had impact. The—the the, uh, my association with those great playwrights was parenthetical in my being name. By the way, Edward uh, Albee, who became my friend, was a frequent guest on BAI. Loved BAI, I may add.
0: You also ran for city councilman in 1985 in Manhattan to raise awareness about AIDS, uh, uh, which was being called a gay epidemic at the time, Uh, and you ran as an openly gay candidate
1: yeah, which was uh, which was groundbreaking. That's what, remember Bill, William Buckley wanted all gay men to be branded on their heinies. <laughs> Do you remember that? People forget that.
0: Well, we well, that, that could propose that again in some states. And uh... well,
1: then we started finding out that a lot of women were getting it because a lot of their boyfriends were bisexual. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, I went to a very early meeting. I, I, I was called by. Uh, a doctor, or not, a health official in uh, early the early '80s, and uh, there were about six or seven community activists. And these doctors said there are 16 men who have been diagnosed, and they're all at NYU Langone, and they all have—they're all gay, and we think it might be an epidemic, and we're calling it gay-related immune deficiency, GRID. And Ginny Apuzzo said, "Don't." Call it grid. Don't put the name of any people in a disease. And you know, I when I heard Trump calling the China virus, I said that's exactly what Ginny was was because his doing that years later led to an increase in in uh, violence against Asian Americans. To put and and I learned about the politics of health in those early days. Of, of AIDS and the gay community became act, became the healers, the uh, the buddy system and whatnot, and and that's when we confronted the New York Times, which went four years into the AIDS movement with only one story, really? the most significant health story. And we had a meeting and with Sidney Grusin, who was then the the associate publisher, and we said, people are going to pick at the Times if you don't cover the story. Information is essential. And in those days, if the Times did a story, it gave permission to a lot of the television and radio people to cover and uh Grusin arranged for us to meet with abe rosenthal who was then the managing editor in the tyrant we went in ready to shoot bear and we walked into the uh, conference room and he had all his edit- senior editors there and we were ready to fight and-, and rosenthal said we need help help us and i said you don't need us. You have closeted gay people on your staff that can provide the information and stories now. And he said, well, why don't they come forward? And I said, the fear. He said, they would never get fired. And I said, no, but they could end up being the correspondent from Cheyenne, Wyoming. And he said, oh, you've done your homework, haven't you? And, and two weeks later, they did a story on the buddy system, on how volunteers in the in the AIDS community in age that men and women were helping people they loved to get through it that was historic
0: well, the, the Times is now getting rid of all sorts of departments. So. The sports department.
1: Well, they got rid of it a long time ago. They made it official. Yeah, you,
0: you, you can't even find out
1: who won the, I have the, to the get ball the, game last night. I get the news every day so I can get the box scores. I have to know. I want to know, uh, uh, Otani. I want to know what he's doing in, Las, in Los Angeles. I want to know what... Uh, LeBron was doing in LA, and I have to, and the night before, and you, you can't find out in the Times anymore.
0: So, how well did you do in that city council election in 1980? Well,
1: I won the I, I won Chelsea in the village, and I lost the East Side. So, against a sixteen-year incumbent, Kutch by then was campaigning strongly for Carol Greitzer, and she I got forty-five percent, which I'm told against an incumbent was very strong, and that if I ran again, I would win. But at that point, I said. You know I ran into Bill Kunstler one day in the supermarket and he said I had a registered a vote because of you and then he said something very key to me he said you know you shouldn't run again and I said why and he said you're a heel nipper to to for you to be successful inside you have to Perfect the Art of Compromise. And I, and I had learned that. During during the campaign, I, a couple of city council people came to me, women city council people, very progressive, who said, we love you. We want you to win. We'll do everything. But we can't do it publicly because you're running against a woman. Mm-hmm. And, and then they said, you can take the lead on criminal justice. And then at one of the forums, it came up about drugs. And I said, decriminalize it. Stop blocking people up. Treat it like you do alcohol. And one of them said, you can't say that. And I said, well, I just did. Mm-hmm. And she said, but if you say it, we all have to say it. And I said, well, I hope you will provide the leadership.
0: Well, doesn't being a heel nipper play a role in our society? Yes, uh, yeah, very much so. Once you become establishment figure... You can't do certain things. Well,
1: once you're in elected office, I, I said, if I'm in elected office, and I want to get money for a wing of the school that's underserved in my community, I need this council, the vote of this councilman in Brooklyn who's very conservative, and and then I'd have to trade off to support some judge who's a who oinks when he speaks. Mm-hmm. And that's the compromise that you have to do, and some people can live with that, and And, uh, you know, on this station, when I would, I I was so happy with the presidency of Barack Obama. I never thought that we would have such dignity and class and intelligence. And somebody called and started yelling me about some bill in which he soft-pedaled. And I said, he can't move as fast as he wants to in some areas because he has to deal with all those people in Congress to move things along. You have to know that we we have to support him and know that that you, the hard work is done before elections. At election time, you pick those that you think are the best that can win. So in the in the, in the uh, primary uh, uh, last time, I wanted Joe Biden, and the Bernie Sanders people were hysterical with me. And I said, a Jewish socialist from Brooklyn and Vermont who had a heart attack is not going to sway the housewives in Gross Point,
0: Or South Dakota. And, and
1: South Dakota and the black community who are, to whom he's a stranger. They know Joe Biden. And so the answer was, well, the black community is going to come 90% for Joe Biden. I said, 90%. I don't want percentages. I want numbers. 90% of 100 or 90% mm-hmm. of 10,000. Because to get the black community to come out, you had to have somebody that they had some trust in and they didn't and you can't come to them at election time as Bernie was doing and saying i'm with you
0: you published a, m- a memoir in 2015 called fortune in my eyes were you starting to think about how your career looked in retrospect at that point
1: why did i, I can't remember why i did it. i guess i was bored and i just kept writing
0: uh-huh and you would did, oh, didn't what feel happened. like writing plays no, no, anymore I,
1: no i know what happened I was t- after I swim at the Y in the morning. We all sit around and and try and impress each other. And I was telling some stories. And this woman said, "Why don't you put that in a book?" And I said, "Well, after you all read it, who's left?" And and uh, why would anybody care? And she said, "I would." And I'm a literary agent. You give me a chapter, and I'll sell your book. So I did the Attica chapter, and she sold it.
0: Now you've been at WBAI for fifty years, or so uh, ain't that something? Uh, and <laughs> we've gone through many crises at this station. You notice? Are you uh, concerned about the latest crisis? Well, because I don't. Of their the latest crisis
1: means what? Well, <laughs> money has become
0: a big issue, and we are.
1: Well, no, I think what's happened to radio is that uh, for the first time, younger people are podcasting and tick. Stacking. And they don't listen. Going Listening to the radio is not the habit, a habit for the younger generation. And our listeners are seniors, and some are leaving the planet. And I think radio's future is is uh, questionable. Something else may come along that I don't know about and I don't understand, but uh, you all, you and Reggie, must have a better idea about who the listeners are. I think they're much older than they've ever been. Certainly when I started listening to BAI, it was the Vietnam War, and this was the only game in town Mm. against the war, and we were all, you know. Now
0: it's MSNBC and CNN and a whole bunch of other places. Well,
1: MSNBC's pretty, you know.
0: Well, unfortunately we 've kind of run out of time, David so fast is there anything you want to say to our Well audience I am about doing, the AI before no I want to tell you
1: that i 'm doing my one person I am going to do my one person show for, for my 90th. Yeah. it 's my farewell performance because i don 't think i 'll be able to remember my life after this year
0: oh gee
1: so i 'm doing, doing it i okay. 'm doing it on the thirteenth of August, a week before my ninetieth birthday at the castle at fortune society it 's a benefit for Fortune Society. It's, uh, am I allowed to give the price and the if, sure. it, if people want to go it's uh, you email me at DPR that's like depressed person Rothenberg DPR fortune at hotmail.com give your phone number and I'll call you and you if you come you'll come if you don't I'll, I'll and, tell you about it later
0: And unfortunately that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to check out more of our one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access our archive of over 800 past shows at WBAI.org. 800? Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else that podcasts are available. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at org. Right now... I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting BAI as we struggle to stay afloat during these difficult times. So we're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212 209 2950 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org or 212-209-2950 and you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of what we call a BAI buddy for $10, $15, $20, $25, whatever you're comfortable with for as long as you want to do it. It allows us to plan for the future and in gratitude we We offer a WBAI tote bag to everyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more.
1: Uh, I became a buddy, and I never got a tote bag. Are there any hanging around here?
0: I'll get you a tote bag. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because we rely on your tax-deductible contribution. Uh, Again, the number, 212 209 2950 or go to give to wbaiorg And I hope you can join us tomorrow when Orlando Fiji will discuss his new book, The Story of Russia. We'll see you then.